following message is brought to you by Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We exist to bring glory to God by knowing Christ and making Him known. If you would like to visit our church, we hold multiple services on Sunday mornings starting at 9 a.m. We are located between Motokare Wharf and Edai Town. Pickups are available 709-1000. Eleven today, including the chapter, I do hope, Lord willing, we'll finish Romans chapter 11 today. He had been a faithful deacon for several years. He had served the early church very well. In fact, I believe he probably knew all of the Grecian widows by name. Previously, the early church had neglected the Grecian widows, and that was the reason that the church called out seven deacons in the early days. Stephen served them well. He did his job well. The church had prayed and seen him as a man, the Scripture says, full of the Holy Ghost. He did his job the way he was supposed to. Church grew greatly as he served them. The Bible makes this statement in Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. It says, Stephen was full of faith and power. Oh, I pray that one day that it might be said that of me. Here he is, a deacon. He's not an apostle, not the pastor. He's not one of the elders. He's just a deacon, full of faith and power. And God used him. He did great wonders and miracles among the people with a servant's heart and the ability to do miracles. Must have been an amazing fellow. He was carried one day before the chief priests and the rulers questioned about his faith and he began to preach. And oh boy, did he ever preach the house down. For 52 verses in Acts chapter 7, he preached the house down. I typically do 51 minutes. He did 52 verses. They all got recorded. One of the longest sermons in all of Scripture. And he preached and they listened. And after he preached, he brought it to a conclusion. Instead of people coming to Christ, they gnashed on him with their teeth. You know what that means? They were so angry, they bit him. That's an anger. Full of the Holy Ghost, miracle worker, servant to the church, and they dragged him outside the city and they stoned him. Will you let that sink in for a moment this morning? Don't just let that pass as a martyr before the church. But when they stoned him, it was brutal. Can you just imagine a rock hits him in the elbow, grabs him. That's painful, and he knows there's more to come. They hit him in the knee, and he falls down to his knees. Another one hits him in the head. Perhaps he goes unconscious for a moment. He knows there's many more to come. A man full of faith filled with the Holy Spirit, been preaching, 
been doing what he's supposed to be doing, they're pummeling him with rocks. Chapter 8 and verse 2 in the book of Acts, it says, Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. That shook the church to its core. Acts chapter 8 records that all of the disciples gathered. I ask a question in that moment. God, what are you doing? For we know that He works all things together for good. Oh, I know that He's at work, but God, what are you doing? And I'm sure that the early church asked that question. And that's the question that we will see today in Romans chapter 11. God, what are you doing? What's happening in that life, in our lives, as things don't go the way we expect them to go? God, what are you doing? And can I bring you a promise this morning, and I hope that it's a promise that you will see repeated throughout chapter 11. We're going to tackle verses 11 to 36, and if you know me, that's going to be a lot of verses for us to tackle in one sermon. But I hope you will see it repeated over and over and over in our passage today. And here's the thought, the overarching theme for today. God is always doing a glorious work. Always. He does not hang up his hat for just a little while, take his gloves off, and put them off to the side and sit back and relax and just let things flow and hopefully he can catch up with them later and work them all out. That's not how he works. He's always at work for good for you. I hope that you'll see it this morning as we walk through Romans chapter 11, we'll pick up our passage in verse 11, and Lord willing, we'll make it through to the end of the chapter. There are four pictures that Paul gives us in these first verses, verse 11 through verse 27. There's four pictures that he's going to give us, and we'll just see them one at a time. We'll see these pictures of God at work. The first one is a picture of jealousy. Look at verses 11 and verse 12. There's been a question that's been floating around. God, what are you doing with Israel? Because you promised that you would never turn your back on those whom you look after. Israel was your chosen people. Perhaps now we can see that maybe, somehow, maybe God has forgotten about Israel and He's turned His back on Israel at this point. We don't know. Is that what's going on? And His answer to that has been resoundingly, God always keeps His promises. Always. And so here we see God at work. This is a picture of jealousy. See it in verses 11 and 12. I say then, have they stumbled, that's Israel, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fault, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. And so you see this word jealousy at the end of verse 11. So this is God at work in jealousy. So what's He doing? And the question was, did God cause them to stumble so that they would fall? I hope that maybe that conjures up in your mind a picture of God. Is God a playground bully? 
Did he stick his foot out as Israel was passing by just so that he could knock them over and he can somehow find a joy in knocking them over? That's not how God works. Did God cause them to stumble just so that they would fall? God forbid. It's not the way that God works. But instead, rather, in verse 11, rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Last week, I gave an example of ice cream. You have more than one child in your family, you understand the idea of jealousy. You give ice cream to one child, the other one will say, and me? And you cannot hide that. Moms and dads, if you're young and you have little children, let me just help you. You'll never hide the fact that you gave ice cream to one and not the others. Because that one has a very sinful heart. He will quickly run and tell the others. It may not come up today, but it will come up. I promise. And so here's what God has done. He has stood with outstretched arms to Israel and they rejected Him. He continued to leave His arms outstretched. And with His outstretched arms, He says in the book of Isaiah, He said, I put My arms out and those who were not a people came to Me. That was the Gentiles. And in God leaving His arms outstretched, He did not do that to knock down the people of Israel, but He left them outstretched so that the Gentiles would find Him. That's us. I'm thankful for that. And then in Him giving good, gracious gifts to you and I, He has now created jealousy in the heart of those of Israel as they look back and they go, but wait a second, that was supposed to be for us. God's creating a heart of jealousy in them. Now look at verse 12, and there's a question that's brought in here because I hope that it will make your mind go to what is to come. If the fall of them be the riches of the world, and that was for you and I, and if the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So if them passing over His goodness brings great joy and grace upon us Gentiles, when they do come back to being right with God, oh, how much greater will be our cumulative corporate worship and the grace and glory of God will be elevated to a plane upon which we cannot comprehend. How much more will be the fullness? So there's coming a day, He just gave us a glimpse, there's coming a day when Israel will come back. We'll see another picture Verses 13 to 15, this is the picture of resurrection. Verse 13. Speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation. That's an old English word for jealousy. If I might provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And here we see God at work. Secondly, in resurrection. We saw it in jealousy. Now we see it in resurrection. But here's the image. It's as if Israel, apart from God, might as well be dead. Uh, By the way, that was you and I too, Ephesians 2. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, and He quickened us. He made us alive. 
That's His work to do. And so here's Israel apart from God. Now, I know right now the health, wealth, and prosperity Gospels have disturbed our culture to the point where you might think that perhaps if we can just buddy up with Israel and do good to Israel, then God will pour out manifold financial blessings upon you and me. Please don't buy into that rubbish. That's not Scripture. Do you realize Israel does not follow Jesus? And yet, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. So you cannot reconcile those two. If a people does not follow Jesus, love Jesus, they cannot be right with the Father. Those don't work together. And by the way, friend, they are just as lost as any other religion that does not come through Jesus. Just as lost as Buddhists would be, or Hindus would be, or Muslims would be, apart from following Jesus, you don't get to be right with the Father. I might even add, if you're putting your trust in your baptism, or in your church attendance, or your good works, you're putting it apart from Jesus. I trust Jesus. He went to the cross for my sin. I trust Jesus alone. And God says, if you trust Jesus, then I will count you righteous. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Jesus. So please don't buy into some idea that says, well, we'll just be like Israel. No, that doesn't work. Israel is apart from God. They've rejected Christ. And God, with outstretched arms, says, would you come? And they've stumbled. They stumbled over what? The rock of offense, who was Jesus. Saw that in chapter 9. And so now, as they are far from God, if you were to talk to the majority of people in Israel today and try to present them with Jesus, they're going to say, no! I think one of the easiest examples of that, there's no celebration for the Jewish people. There's no celebration of Christmas. You know why? Because Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Instead, they will celebrate Hanukkah, the rededication of the second temple, about 160 years before Christ was born. Hanukkah, the lighting of candles, commemoration of the dedication of the temple. They will say no to Jesus. Please don't hear me saying, if you want to be a Jesus follower, you have to celebrate Christmas. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, they wholeheartedly reject Jesus. You might even say, spiritually dead. However, Paul makes a statement here at the end of verse 15, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? But here's God at work in resurrection. It's, it will be on the level, on a playing field of they're apart from God because they rejected Christ. But God will inject life into them as they see Jesus as their all-satisfying joy and they will come to Him. By the way, it's coming in just a few verses. He's going to say it. They will be saved. 
We'll talk about that in a moment. And when they do, it will be as if we look at Israel and we will say, just a few weeks ago, months ago, years ago, they were rejecting Jesus. And now look at them. They're coming to Jesus. It's resurrection from the dead. You see, that's God at work. Resurrection. And you might remember that He alone is the one who can resurrect the dead. He did it for the widow's son at Nain when He put His hand upon the stretcher. He did it for Jairus' daughter there in Capernaum as He took a knee. Talithakumi, young maid, arise. He's the life giver. And He's the life giver for you and I and He will be the life giver for Israel as well. The picture of the resurrection. Thirdly, is a picture of a grafted tree. We'll see that in verses 16 to verse 24. A grafted tree. Let me read verse 16 and we'll start this idea. Verse 16. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. A quick explanation of that is if you can look at a tree and when the tree gives its first fruits, you can partake of those first fruits, taste those first fruits, and you will be able to tell what all of the rest of the fruits that will come from that tree will be like. If you plant a lemon tree, I don't know if you've ever done this, but sometimes you plant a lemon tree and it will give some of the most beautiful lemons, and sometimes it will give some lemons that are as ugly as sin. All kinds of warded. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those you're ashamed to even take to the market right? I don't know what use you do with those. Those ugly, ugly ones. But the pretty ones, those are the ones that you're very excited about. And you'll know it as soon as the tree begins to bear fruit. The first fruits, if they're holy, if they're good, the rest of them are going to be good. That's the picture he gives us in verse 16. Now we continue to read verse 17. And if the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. So remember, when you get that first fruit, where is the nourishment coming from? It's coming from the roots. And if you were to graft in a new branch, that new branch cannot boast about itself because it does not bring its own life. It receives its life from the roots. He says, you, being a wild olive branch, were grafted in to the tree. Quick question, I need to know how many people have ever seen or are familiar with, or maybe you've done it, how many people have grafted a tree in here? I would love to see this. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. This is not eight. This is not nine, ten. You can put your hands down now. Thanks. You're going to keep me going. All right. This is not something we normally do in Papua New Guinea. You may say, Stim cutting. Throw my gold ground. Hands are grow. Big blood blessing. Blow you me. If you have an apple tree, yeah, there's a question. How many people have an apple tree? Yeah, none of us. Right. Gotcha. All right. If you had an apple tree, an apple tree will bear apple fruit. But if you remember, there are many different kinds of apples. There's green apples, there's red apples, there's red delicious, there's Fuji. You know what I'm talking about? All these different types of apples. But those who work the apple nurseries, they know that if they find a tree like a Fuji 
apple that bears really good fruit, they know that tree will always bear that same really good Fuji apple. But if you take the seed from that Fuji apple, this might blow our minds. If you take the seed from that Fuji apple and you plant it, it will grow and it will be an apple tree, but there is a really good chance it will not produce the exact same as that Fuji apple. It might be some type of a hybrid, and that one they call it crab apples. Crab apples are terrible. You don't want to eat them. The stalk, the roots of that plant are still going to be an apple tree, but the fruit of it is not going to be any good. In grafting, what they will do in the nursery is they will take a branch from the really good Fuji apple tree. They'll cut that branch, bring it over here, and they will graft it into the crab apple stock. And then that root will provide nourishment, but they will continue to have the exact same fruit that they had on the original tree. An amazing thing. You can do it with apples to apples. You can do it with all of the citrus fruits of all the things in the world. You can do it with an avocado to a cashew. But you cannot cross them. You cannot bring an avocado over to a mango. It doesn't work. All the mangoes work together. All the apples work together. All the citrus work together. But you cannot take a citrus to an apple. Very interesting science behind it. The olives in Israel, Middle East, Olives are very important to their lives. A wild olive does not bear good, healthy olives. They're always skinny. And if you're trying to get olive oil, you want fat olives. The domesticated olive is something that they have developed over many generations. And so you can imagine a wild olive branch really, let's be honest, is useless. And yet, He says, we Gentiles were a wild olive branch cut and brought over and put into the good tree. Now hold on to that thought because that's the opposite of how grafting works. In grafting, you always take the better branch and put it in the poor stock so that the branch will be able to continue to bear good fruit. However, we as a bad branch have been put into the good stock. Remember, if I can just pause here and help you with a little bit of back thought on this, whenever Jesus touched someone who was unclean, instead of the unclean making him unclean, he always made them whole. So just take that principle and apply it to this idea that we as a bad branch get put into Christ, oh, we are a new creature. Take on a whole different look. Hold on to that thought. And we'll continue on here. He says, don't boast by your, by the way, verse 18, boast not, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou shalt say, thou will say then, verse 19, the branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. So hold on a second, Gentile brothers and sisters, you and I who have been grafted into the tree, Don't ever for a moment boast about how good we are. Remember, we were just a bad tree that got put in. We don't look at those branches that were cut off and set aside and say, you plifier wood, that's all. No, you never get to boast. Instead, with gratitude, we look at the root and we say, thank you, 
for your nourishment. Oh, that's God being good to us. We don't deserve it. We have no right as a wild branch to be put into His tree. We have no right. So instead, we look at the roots. We do not boast of ourselves and say, look what goodness we bring to His tree. No, instead, we look at His roots and we say, thank You for Your goodness upon us. Continue the thought here in verse 20. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest He also spare not So be careful. The reason that those other branches were cut off was because they rejected the one with outstretched arms. They did not come to Him in faith. They tried to bring their good works and He says, don't boast, for when you boast, you're no longer standing in faith. If God could cut those branches off, watch out, He can easily cut you off too. It is not because of our goodly heritage. Verse 22, he continues his thought, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell severity, but towards thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. So stay in the vine, brothers and sisters. Don't stray. You got put in by faith. Stay in by faith. The tree, that's Him, is the one who provides complete nourishment for us who do not deserve to be in His family. I'm so thankful. Oh, amazing picture of grafting. And we'll move on in just a moment. Amazing picture of grafting. You can take a citrus tree and you can actually have multiple different branches bearing different fruit. That's an amazing idea. That on the same tree, you can have an orange and a lemon and a grapefruit and a calamansi if you wanted. You have all of these different fruits bearing and the branch continues to bear the resemblance of its original branch. The leaves are still orange leaves. The fruit is still orange fruit. And yet it takes its nourishment from the roots. And I'm so glad that when we come to be grafted into the tree, God giving us our nourishment, we do not have to take on the characteristics and the appearance of the Jewish people. Oh, God gets glory in our diversity. And here we are, different branches, looking differently, and yet we're receiving the nourishment from Him. Oh, we do not boast about ourselves. We look amongst ourselves and we say, God, thank You that You bring us all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different people all bringing nourishment from Him. We see God at work in this picture of a grafted tree. We'll continue on now in verse number 25. This is a picture of the coming Zion Deliverer. Coming Zion Deliverer. I'll explain it as we go. Look at verses 25 to 27. Verse 25. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. I'll finish verse 26 in just a moment. But this is a mystery, he says. It was not previously revealed. doesn't mean it's a mystery and you can't figure it out. The word mystery in that Old English means that it was not previously explained. And so here he says, I'm going to explain it to you now. That right now, Israel has been blinded by God. We saw that last week. He has been, Israel has been blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And then after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, we might call that the church age. While you and I enjoy the benefits of God, God has blinded Israel and the day will come when He will say, yes, the Gentiles have come in fully and now He will open back to Israel. And it says, so all, verse 26, all of Israel will be saved. Yes, that's the remnant that we talked about previously and it is the rest of Israel. They will all come to Him. And that will not come just as Him giving them a free pass. God never gives a free pass. So how will it happen? Verse 26. So all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is My covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Do you see who will do it? Who will bring them to Him? The Deliverer. Oh, Israel knows the word deliverer well. They had a deliverer by the name of Moses back when they were in Egypt. Remember that one? And they loved Moses. He brought them out, delivered them out of Egypt, and now they're going to have another deliverer. And this new deliverer is Jesus. Oh, you can look through the lineage of Jesus and see again and again, Jerusalem is where He comes from. Zion is the name of the mountain upon which Jerusalem sits. A deliverer will come from Zion. You can just imagine this. You say, but pastor, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Oh, you don't realize Bethlehem is a suburb of Jerusalem. It's as far away from Jerusalem's center as Baruni is to Jackson's airport. Same distance. We might as well say backyard. He's from Jerusalem. He's from Zion. And he will set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. Oh, he preached there. He was crucified there. He rose again there. And He will set up His kingdom there. He will return and put His feet there. He is going to come as King of kings and Lord of lords. And on that day, He will be seen by Israel as their deliverer. Oh, this is a mighty thought. I will not go into all of those things that are to come. I'll just give you a glimpse. There's to come a rapture of the church. The church will be taken up to heaven. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And following after that will be a seven-year period. The book of Revelation explains that. There's a seven-year period of tribulation upon the earth. And when that tribulation comes to an end, all the nations of the world will gather to fight against Israel. Of all things, why? Friend, anti-Semitism has been very much at the core of man's ungodliness for a very long time, dating all the way back to the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the nations of the earth will gather and fight against Israel, and God will send Jesus as the deliverer in that day. That will be prophecy, uh, fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12. I'll share it with you. Listen closely. Zechariah 12, verses 8 to 10. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And oh, that sounds like a glorious thing. And you might say, but pastor, that was Old Testament. Perhaps that's already happened. No, listen to the rest of verse 10. Here's what it says. And they shall look upon Me whom they have Years. 
That's Old Testament. Speaking of Jesus. Speaking of the last day. You see, Jesus will return in that last day when Israel stands in battle way outnumbered by the nations and the armies of the world. And they will say, how, how will we ever be delivered? And there's Jesus. He will come and put His feet on Jerusalem and He will deliver His people. And they will look upon Him whom they have pierced. And they will, the next words, they will mourn for Him as one mourneth for His only Son. And they will be in bitterness for Him as one that has bitterness for His own firstborn. At their heart, they will say, why did we ever crucify Him? They will realize that they had missed the Messiah and yet He will be their deliverer in that day. That's the picture of God at work in the Zion Deliverer. They will repent. They will be saved. You see, we've been saying it all along. God has not forgotten His promises. And He will fulfill all of His promises to Israel. If you look with me now in verses 28-32, to we've seen the four pictures of God at work. I'll make this statement. This would be the second statement for overarching. It's this. God has been at work even when you thought He was not. We're going to move now from Israel to us as Gentiles personally. God has been at work even though you might have thought He was not. Let me read verse 28. As concerning the Gospel, they, Israel, are enemies. They're enemies of the Gospel for your sakes. But as touching the election, that was those people of Israel that were elect, that remnant, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. So God had not been giving up on Israel he had his arms outstretched the entire time. They stumbled over Jesus. He left his arms outstretched so that you and I Gentiles might receive him. And now we have received him. And he will give an opportunity to Israel as well. But he's been at work in the hearts of Gentiles all along. I'll give you an Old Testament example. Jonah. God's been giving Gentiles a chance for a very long time. Chapter 15 in the book of Romans will unpack that. We'll get to that sometime in the future. Jonah, a Jewish prophet sent by God to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians who were the enemy of God, and God was going to pour out His wrath on them. And He said, Jonah, I want you to go so that they will have a chance to repent. You see, God's been very interested in the Gentiles all along. And he's been at work even when you didn't think he was at work. In fact, let me show you a couple of these throughout this passage that we've walked through. Look back at verse 11, the middle of the verse. Even though you thought we were talking about Israel, we've actually been talking about the Gentiles. Look at verse 11, the middle of the verse. Rather, through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. And then in verse 21, if God spared not the natural branches, take heed that He also spare not be. This is a moment of caution. Oh, Gentile, be careful. Don't boast yourself. Then the middle of verse 22, but towards thee, Gentile, God has shown goodness. If you continue in His goodness, 
the end of verse 25, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, there's a reason that he did that, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Then verse 28 is concerning the Gospel. They were enemies for your sakes. You see, even though you thought God was only working with Israel while He was working it with Israel, He was also working with the Gentiles. He's been at work even when you didn't think He was. God's been working for both Israel and the Gentiles. And that brings me into verse number 32. God hath concluded them all in unbelief that He might have mercy upon all. God has every desire. He is long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Coming to verse 33 now. This will be the third thing and final one for today. I'll make this statement and I'll explain it. Number three is this. Your theology should lead you to doxology. Your theology should lead you to doxology. Theology is the study of God. The old Latin portion, ology, O-L-O-G-Y, means to study. Theo means God. So your theology should lead to doxology. So here we are. Our study of God, our theology should lead to doxology. That's the praise of God. So I'm going to bring out my study of God should lead me to the praise of God. And that's what's going to happen in verses 33 to verse 36. So let's see it. After 11 chapters of theology, Paul is going to pause. He's going into chapter 12, and it's going to be a practical outpouring. How does all of this impact your life? We'll see chapter 12 in a few weeks. But before he goes into chapter 12, he's going to stop, and he's going to praise God. Look at him do it in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of Him? Who has been His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it shall be recompensed unto Him again? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. So start right at the very beginning with the word, verse 33. Oh! Oh! You know what the word oh means? means, oh, I can't find a word for right now. This one is going to come from way down. You mean, Papua New Guinea, Mr. Tolk, coming from my liver. This one's right inside. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. This one's coming from right down inside of me. Oh, I want you to see how deep. I cannot plumb the depths of this well as I dive down and I try to find the corners. I can't find it. His wisdom and the depth of the riches of His wisdom and His knowledge as He puts things together with outstretched arms so that He can then cause one to stumble who will then have jealousy back over the other. Oh, the depth of His wisdom and His knowledge choosing us long before we ever chose Him. Long before I ever had the moment and the opportunity to trust Him. Oh, as He chooses us with His foreknowledge and His wisdom as He plots out the course of my life and changes things so that my life will be for good in His glory. Oh, the depth He is at work in all things for your good. His ways are past finding out. He giveth and He giveth and He giveth again. 
And he will never be in any man's debt. No man will ever be able to give to him anything that will place God in his debt. He is not in need of anything. And he is before all things. And by him, all things consist so that the words in verse 36 hold up for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. He's always at work in all things for your good. In 2012, I heard John Piper make a statement and it has resonated in my heart for the last 10 years. And here's the statement. God is always doing 10,000 different things in your life. You might know about three of them. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you might know three of them. Friend, can I add to that? You might not like those three things. For Israel, being cut off from a tree, he's doing 10,000 things. They don't understand. Jesus, how does that play in? For Mary and Martha, it was sitting beside Lazarus' tomb for four days while the desert sun beat on them and they waited for Jesus. Jesus could have healed him. They knew it and they said it multiple times in John 11. Jesus, if you'd only been here, you could have healed him. You see, God is doing 10,000 things in their lives and they don't see all of them. Rest in the fact that you don't see all that He's doing, and then He shows up. And you know what He's doing in that moment? He's showing He has power over resurrection. Could you imagine being Lazarus on His deathbed? He has no idea what God's going to do. Lazarus lays there on his deathbed. I can only imagine... Maybe he asks things like, has anybody sent word? God's doing 10,000 things. He closes his eyes. He has no idea what's to come. Abraham's bosom? Maybe. The next thing he's going to hear, Lazarus, come forth. He wasn't expecting that one. And for Mary and Martha, they get to hear things like, I am the resurrection and the life. Believest thou this? Do you believe it, Mary? Do you believe it, Martha? See, God's doing something in their lives. And in case you think that I just made all that up, let me repeat for you the words from John chapter 11 and verse 4. Before Jesus ever started His journey and made the statement, Lazarus is asleep and the Disciples said, well, if he's sleeping, let's don't disturb him. Here's what the Bible said in John chapter 11 and verse 4. Jesus heard that, delayed his going to see them in Bethany, and he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. You see, God is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might not have any idea what he's working on, but you can trust him because he is always doing a glorious work, and it will be for good for you. Just this week, 
One of my schoolmates, Terry Sturley, perfectly healthy young lady, same age as me, walked out into her yard, collapsed dead. Nobody knows why. How can talk stick to a place? A kind of sticky no Dropped dead, left behind a 49-year-old widower husband, very faithful family in the church in Kentucky. She's been the pastor's secretary for probably the last 15 or 20 years. Her daughter just got married three weeks ago. Her daughter's the same age as mine. God, what are you doing? They just buried her just a few hours ago. Texted with her husband named Matt. Some golden daybreak, Jesus will come. Those were the words we said. Comfort one another with these words. I don't know what God's doing in Matt's life and daughter's lives. I don't know what God's doing, but God does. And right now, he's putting the words of Philippians 1.21 into reality. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Oh, I don't know which one to do. These are Paul's words in Philippians 1. I don't know which one to want right now, whether to stay with you, which is good, or to go be with Jesus, which is better. Oh, she's enjoying the good. For Stephen, his stones pummeled his head. He said things like this, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Oh, if ever there was a moment that he's getting to enjoy, it's while the rocks are crushing his skull. I get to see Jesus in His closing words, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. God is always at work for good. Say, How in the world could that be for good? Because you might remember that there was one guy who was standing off to the side consenting unto his death. You would know him as the Apostle Paul. And that day he was just Saul the persecutor holding the jackets of those who threw the rocks. And Paul heard the words, lay not this sin to their charge. Two chapters later, God used that prayer to resonate in his heart as God knocked Paul off of his donkey on the way to Damascus. And Jesus' words, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul immediately recognized the voice of Jesus. I would say, what was God doing with Stephen in that moment as rocks were hitting him in the head? What was God doing? God was grabbing Paul, who would then change the landscape of Europe for the next thousand years. You see, God's doing things that you may not have any idea of. And Paul himself would have loved to have been out planting churches one after another, and yet God had a different plan. Stuck him in prison for years. I won't dive into his story, but you might remember there was at least a two-year period that Paul sat in prison because one king wanted a bribe. Two years! And that very king, when he changed places with the next king, passed word, I don't even know why this guy's even in prison. Been waiting for him to pay me off, and he won't. That should be a lesson on its own. And yet here Paul sits, while he would have rather been out planting churches, he penned epistles 
Four of them you and I have from his time in prison, Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon, and we know what it means to forgive because of Philemon, and we know what it means to have joy and affliction because of Philippians, and we know what it means to be resurrected from the dead in our salvation because of the book of Ephesians. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, God is always at work for your good. And you might not be seeing it right now. In the middle of your terrible job, He is at work. And in the middle of your search for a job, He's at work. In the middle of your mother's cancer, He's at work. In the middle of your cousin's death, He's at work. I've sat with many of you, and I hope you've heard that sermon preached in the counseling room. He's at work. In the middle of your sanctification as you've been battling sin, He's at work. And in the middle of your child's rebellion, He's at work in you. And His work is glorious, so you can trust Him because His ways are past finding out. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. To Him be glory forever and ever. Your theology should lead you to doxology. I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer this morning. Stand with me. I'm going to pray. The altar's open if you'd like to come and talk to the Lord about what it is that you need. This morning perhaps has been a reminder that He's always at work. Father, may You be glorified in all the areas of our lives. We live in a city where law and order is just phrases. We live in a culture where family problems is the definition of things that happen that we can't fix. Lord, I want to rest this morning in the fact that You're always at work for our good. I'm going to ask You this morning not to come and kneel at an altar and ask Jesus to take away the problems. I might ask You to come just because you see Him as your greatest treasure and you might find comfort in the fact that He's at work in your life today. Maybe you'll see Him as the giver of peace, not so much the giver of stuff. This morning I know we're talking about hurting hearts. Could I invite you to come and talk to the Lord about your hurting? The altar's open. Um. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus. Hope you've heard the gospel over and over and over over the last few weeks. And I can assure you that God has been at work drawing you as you've heard that Jesus is the most glorious treasure that you can ever hang on to. 
so much more glorious than financial gain and so much glorious than pride. But I ask you this morning, if you would like to put your trust in the Lord Jesus, would you just come down the front? I'd love to have somebody show you how to put your trust in Jesus, for there's no other way you'll be right with God the Father than through Jesus. I ask you to come. Is there one like that this morning? Oh, God's been at work in your life. I ask you to come. Pastor, I'd love to put my trust in Jesus. Is there one like that? Oh, Lord, You're always doing a glorious work. Thank You that You gave the Gentiles an opportunity. You're not a playground bully. Magnificently gracious. I want to thank You for being a glorious God. Thank You for always keeping Your promises. Thank You that in the midst of our trials and our infirmities, our afflictions, thank You that You are always at work. For we know You work all things together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. May we never boast of our own goodness. But instead, may we rely wholly on the nourishment that comes from You. Thank You for being a good God. Thank You for Your people this morning. May You bless Your people. Give encouragement. And now before I close, Lord, I want to remember two who are sick that I forgot at the beginning. So Lord, would You be with Carissa this morning? Her sickness and inability to be with us. I pray for her healing. Also for Tumelo, Clement's family, the illness that has worked its way through their family. I pray for healing for Peggy and the children. Thank you for your goodness upon us, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Matt Allen of Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We would love to have you join us for service if you are in the area. If you need help with transportation, please give us a call on 709-1000. Again, it's 709-1000.